Let's bow in prayer before we look into God's Word today. Lord, we thank you for the wonderful story of your great love, of your amazing grace, of the tender mercy of you, our God, shown to sinners like us. Lord, surely it does bring joy to us. It brings a delight. It brings a sense of amazement again and again the more we think about the story of Christ coming and living and dying and being buried and being raised. Lord, we pray that it would be that which is our passion, our heartbeat, that it is the desire of our hearts to be on mission for you and to be involved in making known to others how that grace has changed us and given us hope and peace and life in the Holy Spirit. So, Father, we ask that you would even now take these words, this portion of your word, and that you would infuse it with life from your Spirit. It is from your Spirit, and we pray your Spirit would use it to help us see it and understand it as you intended. And we ask, Lord, that we might, therefore, be challenged to be uh, followers of Christ in all that that means. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. When it comes to track and field, and this is out of my realm of understanding or experience, but in the realm of track and field, there are a number of events which involve one individual person who is running, or one individual person who is jumping, or one individual person who is pole vaulting, and a number of other events involve one person. But there is one area of track and field that involves a number of people on the same team, and that is a relay race. And several of these teammates compete as a team, and the relay race begins with one runner, runner number one, who has in his hand a baton. And that runner from the team that he represents, let's say the red team, he takes off and he's running around the track and does the first leg while he's holding that baton. And then he comes up to the area where the second team member of his team is located and that guy is standing there he waits and he starts moving before the guy gets there and then the guy is running hard as he can they try to make sure that the transfer of that baton goes from the runner first runner to the second runner then he takes off with the baton around he goes he does the second leg and it continues on depending on how long it is and how many people involved usually it's maybe like four guys uh, in a relay race now the objective of course is to be the first team to have one of your runners take the baton that started off that race with a member of that team. It's been transferred now two, three, four times, and then to have that runner come and he crosses the line first. That's the objective is to win with that baton in your hand. Now, as you know, it's not just about speed. That's very important. But if you have speed and for some reason the exchange of the baton did not go well, That is, you had to slow down and you had to try to find the guy's hand and he couldn't seem to hold on to it or he drops it, then that's lost precious moments. Some people have even been disqualified because of the transfer of that baton. Now, I've been thinking about that because I think in some ways what Jesus is doing in the last part of Matthew's gospel, Matthew 28, verses 16 to 20, in a sense could be compared to like a handoff. The handoff of, in the relay race, of redemptive ministry. 
So Jesus is taking the baton that he has been having here for the first leg of the race, as it were, of his three years of public ministry, and here in this passage he hands it off, the baton of incarnational ministry, that is, ministry among people, taking and living among people, as Jesus had just done. He says, all right, you're going to be involved in this ministry. He hands it off to his followers, and they are now called to minister on his behalf. And then he says, I want you folks to hand off that baton to the next generation after you of faithful disciples until the end of the age comes. Jesus directed his disciples to firmly grasp the baton of redemptive responsibilities and to run that race of ministry that's set before them. This is sort of what he's trying to to help them see what's going to happen here. There is this need to pass this on. He's passing it on to them. They need to pass it on further. And so I want us to read the text here uh, in Matthew chapter 28, last five verses of the book. We've done this now for several weeks, and uh, hopefully you're somewhat familiar with these verses, but we're going to repeat again, verse 16 to the end of the chapter. This comes now after Jesus has been raised from the dead. The eleven disciples proceeded to Galilee, to the mountain which Jesus had designated. And when they saw him, they worshipped him. But some were doubtful. By the way, princess, some have said, some commentators said, if this is not further evidence of the inspiration of scriptures, why would anyone record such words if it weren't true? Again, it's an, it's an evidence that this is indeed what exactly happened. There were some who did doubt. There were some who had some questions still, even at that moment. Verse 18, Jesus came up and spoke to them, saying, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you, and lo, I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. Now, in previous sermons, we've been looking now and considering the fact that Jesus, first of all, commissioned his followers, as it were, he transferred the baton of, of incarnational ministry to his followers with absolute authority. And that was the first sermon we noticed in this particular text. Then we began to expand last week on what we're going to continue on today. He also commissioned his followers with clarity or with specificity. He gives some specific things I want you to be doing now in this attempt to make disciples. And the goal of the race now that Jesus is commissioning his disciples to be a part of is to make disciples of all nations, that is, everywhere and without distinction, go and make disciples of every people group in the world. Now, Jesus knew his kingdom would never be built merely by gaining converts who were committed to being comfortable or being popular or being people who are wanting to lord it over other people. Jesus knew that's not his goal and objective, and the kingdom will never expand if that's the commitment that people think, that's the baton I'm going to pick up and run with. No, Jesus is very clear in this text. He's making it known that the the runners in Jesus' mission, his relay race, they must what? Matthew chapter 16, verse 24, they must deny themselves, take up their cross, and follow me, he said. And so genuine disciples, we noticed last week, are called by 
and committed to Jesus Christ. That was the first point we made in terms of what's the characteristic of a true disciple. They are called by, committed to, and converted to Jesus Christ. Now, the practical implication we noticed last week was that that means those of us who have responded to the call of Jesus Christ and we who are following him, we must go. And we must go on Christ's behalf and we must bring the good news of the kingdom to those who are still trying to seek their own kingdom. Those who think that the, 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 the secret to life is to, is to find your own kingdom and be your own master, your own Lord, and have your life go your way and rely on yourself and all that you can do is everything's about you. But no, we're called to pronounce that there's a kingdom far greater, the kingdom of Christ, and we are calling people out of the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light, of the kingdom of his dear son. And so we're on mission. We are go, to go and seek out people, live among them, and take the good news of what Christ has done to all the peoples of the earth. Now, this morning we're going to consider another characteristic of a genuine disciple. Last week we looked at they were called by and committed to Jesus Christ. This week we're looking at the second characteristic. A true disciple is to give public testimony of his or her identification with the triune God and the people of God by way of water baptism. Now, that's, a, a, that's a big mouthful, but I think it's a helpful way of trying to summarize what the text is saying here. We're going to look here in verse 19. Verse 19, Go therefore make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all I commanded you. So there's actually three what we call participles that modify the main verb. Main verb in those verses is make disciples. And how do we make disciples? By going, by baptizing, and by teaching. And that's, what, that's how the text fits together there grammatically. Now that raises a question then, why does Jesus expect his disciples to be baptized in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit? And before I answer that question, I just want to talk a little bit briefly this morning about a number of people who have come to this text and they have mistakenly taught things that are inaccurate, biblically speaking, about baptism. They have taught that water baptism provides or actually completes some sort of spiritual transformation in a person that would actually remit their guilt, the guilt of original sin, and actually provide full forgiveness and right standing before God. That's taught uh, particularly in the Church of Rome. Where I would quote the, cat, the catechism, it says, quote, Baptism is necessary for salvation. The church does not know of any other means that assures entry into eternal beatitude. And in the Code of Canon Law, number 849, those that are baptized are thereby freed from their sins and are reborn as children of God incorporated into the church. Did you catch that? Reborn as children of God. So here are little infants who are being baptized who are reborn as children of God. Now again, the church at Rome has taught for centuries that baptism saves the soul even when administered to infants. And, I, and a summary of this particular view of baptism can be called baptismal regeneration. That is, that through baptism, someone is actually made alive in Christ. They've actually had a transformation of who they are 
in their own person, that is, they're standing before God and in their uh, internally, spiritually speaking. Now, while the Bible does teach the importance of water baptism, nowhere does it say that whoever is not baptized is lost. Okay, now hear me clearly on this. Nowhere does the Bible say that anyone who is not baptized is somehow lost. The Bible teaches that whoever does not believe in Jesus Christ alone, those are the ones who fail to enter into the kingdom. John 3.16, an example of that. Uh, a number of other texts, John 5.24 is a very clear text speaking of the importance of faith alone in Jesus. And Paul made it clear in his summary of the gospel in 1 Corinthians 15, I would encourage you to turn to that just for a second, 1 Corinthians 15, Paul says in the first four verses that baptism is not essential to salvation. What does he say there in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 as he begins there to acknowledge what he had been teaching those in Corinth? He says in 1 Corinthians 15 verse 1, I made known to you, brethren, the gospel which I preached to you. What gospel? The gospel I received, on which, in which you now stand, which you are saved, if you hold fast the word which I preached to you, unless you believe in vain. For I deliver to you, here's what he delivered, of first importance, that which I received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures, and then he appeared to all these different other people. That's the gospel. He said, that's what I proclaim to you. And interestingly enough, he says nothing there about baptism. And if you back up to chapter 1 of 1 Corinthians, the first chapter of 1 Corinthians, Paul distinguishes the gospel from baptism when he writes this, verse 17. Christ did not send me, 1 Corinthians 1, 17. Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel. Not in cleverness of speech, that the cross of Christ should not be made void. See, in the previous verse of that first chapter, verse 16, Paul had pointed out that he had baptized only a few people there in this church in Corinth. And that's an odd thing to say for Paul if baptism was essential for salvation. But Paul clearly does not understand and does not believe, and nor does the Bible teach that baptism is essential to salvation. You see, without having baptized them, Paul could say in chapter 4 that he was their father in the faith. Now, he only baptized a handful of people, but he's speaking to the entire church. He says in 1 Corinthians 4.15, In Christ Jesus I have begotten you through the gospel. So what I'm trying to suggest here is to you that there's no one is ever transferred from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light by being baptized in water. It's important you understand that. The Bible nowhere teaches that anyone who is sprinkled with water or who is immersed in water is somehow going to be transferred from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light. That does not transfer anybody. We're saved by Christ alone on the basis of grace alone through faith alone, Ephesians 2, 8, and 9. Now, our doctrinal statement in our church tries to make this clear, as we've stated in writing uh, about baptism, this particular view, biblical viewpoint. Quote, the ordinance of baptism is not to be regarded as a means to salvation or a means of gaining any measure of God's grace. 
So in saying it that way, our doctrinal statement is trying to affirm what we understand the Bible to teach, and that is that it is the cross of Christ, it is what Christ has done for us and what He does as our Savior that is the only means of hope for sinners. It is not what we do or something that happens in washing us or being exposed to some sort of holy water or any kind of water at all. Baptism is not necessary for salvation. Baptism baptism is necessary if we are to obey Christ once we have become saved or a follower of Christ. And an example would be is the thief on the cross. The thief on the cross in, in Luke chapter 23, there he is nailed to the cross right beside Jesus saying, remember me in your kingdom. And Jesus says, today you will be with me in paradise. That man was not baptized. And yet he has had the assurance of Jesus, indeed, he would be in paradise that day. Now I want to move, switch gears here. I want to consider then what is the pattern of the New Testament church? What's the pattern of the apostles? When they heard baptizing people in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, what was the pattern that they followed in light of the directions and instructions that Jesus gave them? This is going to take us through the book of Acts. Now you can either... Look up the verses I go along. I'm going to go rather quickly through them, but I've written them in your notes, so you don't have to panic. But you can look them up on your own and follow the pattern of how the baptism was practiced by the apostles. There are numerous examples of individuals in the book of Acts who repented of sin, who believed on Jesus, and then were baptized in water. The pattern is consistent. First, the good news of God's Word was proclaimed and explained. And then people responded in faith, turning from sin, and then, as an act of obedience, they entered into the waters of baptism. Follow along now and notice this pattern. First, uh, Acts chapter 2. Peter preaches, Acts 2.38, Repent and let each of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. And then we read in verse 41, and those who received his word were baptized. Acts chapter 8, verse 12, but when they believed Philip, preaching the good news about the kingdom of God in the name of Jesus Christ, they were being baptized men and women alike. That came after they had heard the preaching when they believed. Chapter 16, verses 32, 34, here we have Paul and Silas spoke the word of the Lord to the Philippian jailer, together with all who were in his house, and the jailer, as an outward expression of repentance, those are my words, uh, the jailer, as an expression of his repentance, to show a change of heart, he took Paul and Silas, and that very hour of the night, he washed their wounds, and immediately the jailer was baptized. He and all his household, watch this, verse uh, 34, having believed in God with his whole household. The whole household believed. Chapter 18, verse 8. And Crispus, the leader of the synagogue, believed in the Lord with all his household. And many of the Corinthians, when they were heard, and were believing and were being baptized. Now, whenever we read of a household baptism there in Acts, we always read of the household responding in faith, of the reception of the word by the entire household. And so the understanding here is that nowhere in the New Testament are infants specifically mentioned as being baptized. 
it's just nowhere to be found. Also, infants would not have been capable of believing. They would not have been those who could have heard and understood the word preached and believed in response to that message and then would somehow be baptized. That was not the pattern of the New Testament church. Now, what then do we understand baptism to signify? Baptism, as we said, does not save anyone, so we want to be very clear on that. Then why is Jesus telling his disciples, when I'm handing you the baton of ministry and to be on mission for me and taking what I've given you and carrying it out forward, why is baptism so important? What does it signify? Well, Jesus expects his disciples to be baptized because it signifies our union with the triune God. Our union with the triune God. Being immersed in water, in baptism, signifies a believer's identification with Jesus Christ, who himself died and was raised in newness of life. And you say, where do you get that? Our scripture reading this morning, Romans chapter 6, is a critical passage to understand baptism and what it signifies. We read there earlier that baptism is an act of obedience to Christ which conveys outwardly what has true inwardly of our lives and hearts. That is, that we are united to Christ in his death and therefore we have died to our old way of living. Baptism signifies we have been identified and united to Christ. So Christ died when he was here on earth. He died and died to sin. He died hating sin. He died to deal with sin, the awful uh, effects of sin. And, he, and so we, united to Christ, we too are dying to the old way of sinful living. And then in Christ, because we've been united to Christ, Christ was raised to newness of life. We too now, because we've been united to Christ, we also join him in a resurrection. We've been raised to newness of living. A new way of living. A new life in Christ. Romans 6, verse 4. Critical passage. You need to understand that underline those principles. So baptism then is closely associated with conversion. Not that it brings about conversion, but it's associated with conversion and the public testimony of our union with Jesus Christ. Here's another verse I'd like you to write down. It's not in your notes, but look at this sometime and begin to ponder what baptism signifies regarding this idea of death and resurrection. Colossians 2.12. Colossians 2.12. Having been buried with Christ in baptism, in which you were also raised up with him through faith in the working of God, who raised him from the dead. And so in our church, we practice immersion into water because we believe it helps to signify our union with Christ and the death and burial, burial resurrection so that we actually are laying a person into a water grave. That is, if they stay there, remain there, they would drown and die. But they're raised from that and brought up, in, signifying they've been raised with Christ in newness of life. And so uh, that's the part of the signifying of baptism. Baptism also signifies that there's a, a new loyalty, a new sense of commitment that is now being expressed as we confess Christ as Lord. Uh, I don't know how many of you have gone through the process of immigration, but I'm told that immigrants who naturalize, there comes a time when they must take the oath of citizenship. Uh, this happened to our next-door neighbor years ago. A woman living uh, next to us was from, originally from Iraq, 
And uh, she came here and uh, married an American, and he was a Rocky background. And so she celebrated that day when she finally received full citizenship. And you have to take an oath. And here's the oath. Now listen to what you have to promise when you come as a naturalized citizen. You say, I absolutely and entirely renounce all allegiance and fidelity to any foreign prince, potentate, state, or sovereignty of whom or which I have heretofore been a subject or citizen. You say, what is all that gobbledygook saying? That's pretty complicated. What it's saying is this. It's saying you're going to promise that all previous political or national loyalties that you may have made in the past are no longer valid and anything effect upon your current loyalties and your pledge of loyalty to the United States. So that if you've pledged to the queen or if you've pledged to the king or you've pledged to some sovereign or some other nation that you're going to be faithful to it, you're going to break with that and now you're saying my loyalty is only to this country. In a sense, baptism is a similar kind of statement in which you publicly declare your loyalty and your full devotion to Jesus Christ as your Lord and your Master Uh, who is the one you are showing your loyalty to. And water baptism provides a wonderful public platform to renounce all your allegiance to Satan, to renounce any of your allegiance to the world system, which is now opposed to to the kingdom of God. And baptism then publicly identifies a believer, not only in terms of their new loyalty to Christ, but it also identifies them as taking part now in the community of faith. There's a sense in which baptism says, I'm no longer on my own. I've now been joined into the family of God as a result of my faith in Christ and my coming to uh, be a follower of Christ. Look at 1 Corinthians 12, 13. 1 Corinthians 12, 13. Baptism publicly identifies a believer to be part of the community of faith. By one spirit... We were all baptized, that means all believers, we were all baptized into one body, whether Jews or Greeks, whether slaves or free. You see, regardless of our background, regardless of our status, our education, all those kind of differences that exist among us, true disciples in baptism, they portray our union with other believers in the church of Jesus Christ. It's an outward sign of entrance into the church, the body of Christ. It's a wonderful way in which we acknowledge we are now a part of God's people. And baptism identifies us as members of the community called the people of God, the church. Now, notice that, interestingly enough, for Matthew, he emphasizes in Jesus' command that baptism is to be done in the name of the triune God. Rather than being a sacramental formula, we would understand in verse 19 the words to affirm that being baptized is a follower of Jesus, affirms that we are united now with God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. Notice in the text, it does not say in the names of God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. No, we don't believe there are three gods. We believe there's one God. He exists as one God, one essence, but he exists in three persons, Father, Son, and Spirit. You say, explain that to me. I can't. It's beyond my puny brain's ability to fathom what all that means. All I'm telling you is what Scripture teaches. 
So I can't understand everything Scripture teaches, but I can tell you what it teaches, and I'm telling you that that's how God has revealed himself to us as the triune God, the Trinity, which is a word not found in the Bible, yet that is indeed the nature of God. He is a triune God. And so in baptism, I declare that I am united now to the triune God by faith in Jesus Christ, and therefore what? God is my Father, God the Father. I claim Him as my spiritual Father. I claim Jesus Christ as my Savior and my Lord, and I claim the Holy Spirit as the one who is the paraclete, the, the one called alongside my helper and my comforter. And We testify in baptism that we are united to God Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. Now you say, well, what's the practical implications of all this? Isn't this pretty obvious? That's what the text says. I want to think about some practical applications to this text and why Jesus would make this such a big deal about what it means to be a disciple. Well, let me start off with a couple questions. If you have heard the call of Jesus to follow him, and if you have repented of your sin, you have placed your faith and trust in Jesus Christ alone to provide you eternal life, then my next question is, have you been baptized? Have you been baptized? You see, if you claim Christ as Lord and you confess Him as Master before other people, have you taken the first step of obedience to Jesus Christ and been baptized? Romans 10.9 says, If you confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord and believe in your heart that God has raised Him from the dead, you shall be saved. There needs to be the public confession and the announcement that you indeed have a new loyalty. It is Jesus is your Lord and Master. Now, obedience to Jesus Christ is an essential of outward indicator that you are a disciple of Jesus. You say, well, show me that one in the Word. Okay, John 14, 23, and also John 8, 31. Let's look up John 8, 31. Eighth chapter of John, verse 31. As we'll unpack further in weeks to come, the last verse of Matthew's Gospel says what? Teaching them to observe all things I have commanded you. Discipleship and learning to observe what, God is, what Jesus has commanded is essential. And here we see it, another way of saying, stating it in John 8.31. If you abide in my word, then you are truly disciples of mine. If we abide in his word, that is, if his word remains in us and a part of us, and therefore it becomes that which characterizes our lives. Luke 6.46 raises the question, Jesus says, Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do what I say? Implying what? That obedience is expected. If you call me as your Lord and Master, then you need to do what I'm telling you to do. And so, clearly, if you have believed the gospel and you profess to be a disciple and you've not obeyed Jesus and been baptized, my question is, why not? That's the first step. Baptism will not make you a disciple. Baptism is what a disciple does. Having, co become, having come to Christ in repentance, in need of forgiveness, crying out to Christ to save you by grace, through faith alone, then, then we come and say what? First step is, now that I'm a Christian, I'm going to be baptized. And so the question comes, are you willing to count the cost? You say, oh, I could never do that. I could never stand up in front of you. I could never. Okay, you've been united to one who did what? Who died for you and who was raised to newness of life? 
what about that newness of life in your life to at least just say, I confess Christ as Lord of my life. What God calls us to do, He will enable us to do. And so you count the cost. You know, there are some people in this world that when they become baptized, when they are going through the waters of baptism as a Christian, for many of them, that is a way of saying, I'm publicly declaring my allegiance to Jesus Christ. For many of them, that means what? Their family cuts them off from there on out. It's over. The persecution begins with great intensity at that moment. It is, as it were, that place of which you cannot turn back. It is the Rubicon, as it were, that moment where there's no turning back at this point. And that's what baptism is. I am declaring here is my loyal allegiance to Jesus Christ. I confess him as Lord. Some people have lost their jobs. Some people have been disowned. Whatever it takes. But that's the first step. Because why? Because Christ now owns me. And I'm going to declare my loyalty, allegiance, and that I'm united to him. Second question I come out of this as a practical implication here or application is, if you have been baptized... Are you then a member of a local church? See, our church welcomes as members those who have been outwardly identified themselves as the people of God and who have verified their discipleship of Christ in baptism. You see, baptizing children, if the church were to practice that, our church, it, it would really endanger the goal of having a regenerate membership. We have a membership made up of people who have professed and have given some credible evidence of their faith and regeneration in Jesus Christ. And what happens is, if everybody is baptized an infant and that is recognized as their baptism, it, it really it jeopardizes the purity of the corporate church testimony of our community. You say, what's the problem? Well, all of Europe, you know, 100 years ago, everybody was baptized. And yet look at the condition of the church. There were many people who say, well, I'm already I'm automatically made a member of the church, and they, rise, they, they live their life, and they have no interest in the things of Jesus Christ. And it was pervasive in terms of practicing. Everybody almost in Europe was baptized as an infant years ago. Now, let me back up and just explain a little bit of something unique about our church that I need to have a qualification here so I don't get in trouble uh, encouraging people to be baptized. There is a guideline that we have, applied, we have put in place. We are very consistent in how this is applied that asks this, I personally would not permit a child below the years of 12 and under to be baptized, not because I don't believe they have a credible uh, change of heart, perhaps they have really truly come to faith. I came to faith before the age of 12 by God's grace. But I'm just concerned that they not fully grasp the significance of what they are professing and what they are signifying in baptism and therefore, we're asking that they give a reasonably credible testimony of their profession of faith at a point in their life where they understand, wow, look at the implications of what I'm saying when I make my allegiance to Christ. I'm not just pleasing mom and dad. I'm not just doing what my brother did. I'm not just doing what my friend has done. I'm doing this because I understand what it means to be united to the triune God by faith and to be a follower of Jesus Christ and pay the cost no matter what. And so that's what we try to do in our church. We're not trying to dissuade people. We're trying to make sure they understand it and practice it in a way that's meaningful for them. Have you publicly proclaimed then your repentance toward God and your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ in baptism? And, and therefore, but, but somehow in doing that, you've refused to then unite yourself formally as a member of this particular local church or another local church? 
then I wonder if you've identified yourself as the member of a new covenant, because that's what baptism signifies, that you are a member of the new covenant as one who's received a new heart from God, and yet you've, you've, ref- you've entered the waters of baptism, yet you refuse to join the local church of the gathered covenant community. And in joining a church, we put ourselves in a position where we ask our brothers and sisters to hold us accountable, to live according to what we profess with our mouths. And we encourage each other, we admonish each other. And baptism testifies to our union with Christ. And church membership testifies to our membership in the universal church. And therefore, that we are indeed in the body of Christ. Look at John 13, 35, what Jesus said about his disciples. Jesus said that we will be known as his disciples if we have love one for another. Love for one another. My question is, who's included in those one another's? Now, some people say, well, that it just includes every believer. I don't know how you're going to show love to every believer. I, don't, I, don't, I think that's impossible, to be actually honest with you. So I would argue that what Jesus is saying here is that he's arguing that the way to live out the one another commands of the New Testament is that that means I practice those with the community of believers that I have joined myself to, identifying myself as a member of those people, and therefore I'm committed to practicing the one another commands for that collection of God's people in this particular locality. And so if you hang out by yourself after you've been baptized, you refuse to join a church, you've omitted in some sense a large segment of responsibility as a disciple of Jesus Christ because you're not going to be able to live out that commitment if you're not indeed a member and one who's committed yourself to living out that particular expression of commitment to Christ in the body of Christ. Baptized disciples are to commit themselves to a local body of believers where we can help each other work through our problems, our struggles, our joys, as well as our sorrows, and our temptations, as well as our victories we share together and show concern for each other, express our love for God and our, brother, our love for each other, our brothers and sisters, in the fellowship of Christ in this local place. Now, I've been pretty hard now on pushing on this, but I'm only emphasizing it because Jesus emphasized it when he made this commission. We're to be baptizing people, helping them come to grips with these wonderful realities. Now, let me just make one more point here, and I'm done. Years ago, the joke was told between my wife and me. Now, she's not here today, so I have to be careful what I say about her. Uh, she doesn't feel well. Um, the joke was, and we say this with a great smile, uh, why, you know, people say, why would you marry your wife? Well, I married her for a car. That's a joke. You must please laugh. That's a joke. Because and you would really laugh if you'd seen the car I'm alluding to. But she had, at the time we got married, she had uh, received from her father a 1969 Plymouth Valiant. Some of you don't even know what 69 refers to. That's a, that's a year, 1969. They had cars called Plymouth, and they were, uh, uh, let's put it this way, very simple. The air conditioning in that car was a little door you opened underneath the dashboard, and you opened it, letting in air. You know, I mean, that, that, was, that was air conditioning. And it had a slant six engine. I did so much work on that car because it was just simple. It was just an engine. That's all it was. Okay, anyway, so the joke was, why did I marry Joyce? Well, I married her for a car. But the fact is, when I married my wife, everything she had became mine. And everything I had, what little of these world's goods I owned at the time, everything I had become, became 